This morning, we are starting a series on the Gospel of John. So if you want to read ahead, I urge you to do that. But we're not going to start with the very, very beginning of the Gospel of John. We're going to start with the text that we just read about John the Baptist. And hopefully, Lord willing, next week, look at the prologue of John's Gospel in more depth, both in the morning service next week and in the candlelight service next Sunday evening. So, today's text is the Gospel lesson, then, from John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and then verses 19 through 28. And the outline is on the back inside page of your bulletin. Often, at Advent, I like to make the case, I believe I've probably made this case here before, for putting a John the Baptist Christmas ornament on your tree. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to guess the numbers low of those who have John the Baptist Christmas tree ornaments. And I hope by the time the sermon's over, there'll be a rash of orders. (laughs) And what I'm trying to get out here is that, strangely enough, John the Baptist is a crucial part of the Christmas story. That seems a little odd at first, because, of course, John doesn't take up his public ministry until, you know, he's the forerunner, but he comes 30 years after the birth of Jesus. He appears just prior to Jesus' own public appearance. One way to make sense of this is to remember that Jesus' first coming and his second coming are sort of locked into each other. The first coming entails the second coming, The second is already set in motion by the first coming. So we should think this way. Advent is a great time to shape our thinking on this. We should think there's one coming, one appearing, one advent, one day of the Lord, one advent with two poles, one appearing with two moments. That's why in the traditional readings in the church for the Advent season, you'll notice a lot of these readings are about the second coming. It might strike you as odd at first, right? We're celebrating Christmas, and the lectionary is full of texts about Christ's appearance at the end of the age. That's because the church has always understood that the two advents are locked into one another. So if John is the prophet, John the Baptist, who speaks of a coming great day of the Lord, then he's an advent prophet. And if you're looking forward from the Old Testament, say you're back hundreds of centuries and you're looking forward you know, there's a, what you see if you're a prophet like Isaiah is you see a forerunner. And that forerunner prepares the way for the Messiah's coming. Right? And therefore, for these reasons, the traditional Advent readings of the church are also full of texts about John the Baptist. You see John first. Then Jesus appears in your vision. And so there are all these texts, including the one which we're reading today, which is the traditional text for the third Sunday of Advent, which is what today is. All these texts which talk about the importance and the significance of John's ministry. So again, our text from this morning is the text, the gospel text from John 1, and we'll look at it under two headings, the witness and the testimony. The witness and the testimony. Now, if you read the opening of John's gospel... The first thing one notices about the prologue of the gospel, that's the first 18 verses. 
is how startlingly, how markedly different it is from the openings of other Gospels. Right? This cannot but fail to strike a person. In Matthew and Luke, you get these genealogies and you get trips to Bethlehem and a trip down to Egypt, a murderous King Herod and angels and shepherds and Mary and Elizabeth and all of this you know, gritty and glorious Christmas stuff. None of that for John. None of it. He starts by peering into the mysterious eternal being of God himself. That's where his story begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so on for 18 magnificent verses. The depth and riches of which have not yet been unpacked by the church. And of this opening, the 5th century church father John Chrysostom says, it's unlikely that even the heavenly host are privy to what's disclosed here. Chrysostom says, Chrysostom himself was a great 5th century preacher in Constantinople. He says, do these things, speaking of the prologue of John's gospel, he says, do these things belong to a fisherman? Tell me. Do they belong at all to a rhetorician? Do they belong to a sophist or a philosopher? To anyone trained in the wisdom of the Greeks? By no means, Chrysostom says. It's hard to account for this opening of this gospel. Another another church father, Hilary of Poitiers, said, This fisherman of mine, unlettered and unread, is untrammeled by time, undaunted by its immensity. He pierces beyond the beginning. Right? For John's was, in the beginning was the word, has no limit of time, no commencement, Hillary says. The uncreated word was in the beginning. Now, we're not really looking at the prologue this morning. <laughs> but the prologue alone... Indeed, the first few words of the prologue are enough to warrant the name which the early church hung on the author of this gospel. John, the theologian. That's what the early church called him. John, the theologian. So, I hope to come back to the prologue next week, as I said. But I want you to see something remarkable here. In the middle of this prologue, the first part of it is about the eternal pre-existent Christ. A little later, John turns to that Christ's coming into the world. Yet between, between the eternal prehistory of the Word in the bosom of the Father and the appearance of the Word in history, between that, we get the plain but stunning statement of verse 6 in our text. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And so John the Baptist appears in this prologue as the hinge. He's the hinge linking the word who was in the beginning with God and the word who appears in space and time. John, the theologian, puts John the Baptist between the eternal being of God and the birth of Jesus. So if ever there was a text which justified John's inclusion in the Christmas story, this is that text. Which is why this has long been the traditional text for the third Sunday of Advent. So get yourself a John the Baptist Christmas ornament. You know what? 
They have them. Because people have Googled them and showed them to me. In fact, somebody made me one, so we have one. They make for great conversation starters. You can talk about the whole, the whole theology of Advent from it. So, so John is a man, the text says. Jesus is the eternal word of God, become a man, but John is merely a man. And the text says he's a man sent from God. He has a divine mission. He's a sent one. He's what the second century father Irenaeus called an apostle of the father. And the crucial thing about John is that he's a witness. This is mentioned three times in verses 7 and 8 that John's a witness. We saw a lot of this in the book of Revelation, so hopefully you know, we're familiar with it. But witness is a legal term. Witnesses establish the truth in public. They're oath-bound. Witnessing here implies something else. It entails commitment. Right? The word for witness, the Greek word, is martyr. To be a witness is to be a martyr. Originally, the word martyr just meant witness. But because so many Christian witnesses died, we think of martyr as someone who dies for the faith. But martyr is the calling of every Christian. Because to be a martyr is just to be a witness. So there's a kind of binding oneself to the truth, a kind of commitment to witnessing that we don't maybe often associate with it. When you stand in the witness box, like John is standing, you are acting publicly as the one who guarantees, pledges the truth of what you say. Witnesses bind themselves to the truth. They give up all possibility of withdrawing their testimony. So that if people are incapable of staking everything on the truth of what they say, they cannot be witnesses. And John, the theologian, I have to differentiate him from John the Baptist. He uses this term, witness, 47 times in his gospel. So he's certain, and you should be confident, you should take heart from this. He's utterly certain, John is, that God has provided blameless and faithful unimpeachable witnesses to the truth of what he is writing. And among those human witnesses, John the Baptist is the witness par excellence. And the content of John's witness is simple. It's not difficult. It's Christ. John points. He came as a witness or to bear witness or to testify about the light, the text says. This is fitting in the prologue. The word, even before he was incarnate, John says, was the light of men. Jesus is the principle of all human reason, all human rationality, and all human speech, and all illumination, all light. And that word who comes into the world will pour that gracious light out on the world. That word will then designate himself as the light of the world, Jesus says, right? I am the light of the world. To him, to that light, John bears witness. And the goal of the witness is simple. Verse 7, that all might believe through him. John's calling 
if you were to describe it or write the job description, is very simple. He seeks to lead men to Christ, the light of the world. And that means he's an apostle of the Father. He's the last great Old Testament prophet, and he's the first New Testament evangelist. He's an apostle, a prophet, and an evangelist. And in verse 8 says, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. It appears there are hints of this in the Gospels and in the early church. Now, think of this. John's ministry is a powerful ministry. John the Baptist's ministry. He got the whole countryside riled up. People are streaming out from Jerusalem and the environs to be baptized by him. And he creates his own following. And there seems to have been perhaps some friction between his disciples and Jesus' disciples. And so John the theologian reminds us of John the witness that he was not the light. Calvin memorably says of this situation that the men who attach themselves to John the Baptist are like men who, overcome by the sight of the dawn, refuse to look at the sun. People, people get confused, right? John's a powerful guy with a powerful ministry, and people attached himself to him. And so John has to say, look, 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 no, he's not the light. This is an important piece of pastoral work that John's doing. I mean, later John will tell us that John the Baptist was a burning and shining lamp for a little while. He bore light, but it was derivative light. It's the light of a lamp lit by the light of the world. That's what you are. Your lights in the world, your lamps lit by the light of the world. So if you already have the strange you know, prophetic-looking figure dangling from your tree, I can suggest a second ornament. You can get a lamp and just inscribe John the witness on it. He's a burning lamp pointing to the light of the world. So that's the witness. The second thing here is, is his testimony. So, you know, John's created quite a stir. And so what happens, you can see this in the text, an official delegation of priests and Levites is sent from Jerusalem out into the wilderness where John's baptizing some 15 or 20 miles. And they had some questions. The first one is seen at the end of verse 19. Basically, who are you? We know that many were wondering if John was the Christ, and he gets the drift of the question. In verse 20, he, he, you get this vigorous repudiation of, of being the Christ, of Messiahship. He confessed, the text says, that's what witnesses do, they confess. He confessed and he didn't deny, he confessed, I'm not the Christ. So he agreed, he makes a clear, distinct, you know, morally unambiguous confession in public. He agrees with John the theologian, I'm not the light. Okay. So the second question, verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? I am not. Now, this can be a little puzzling, actually, because Jesus actually says that John was Elijah. It appears that the Jews expected the reappearance of the very same Elijah who was taken up in the Old Testament, not simply one who came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And so knowing this, John denies, 
he denies that he is Elijah in the sense that they're asking him the question. I am not literally Elijah, no. Okay. So the third question from the delegation. Now remember, this is a pretty sophisticated delegation. These are priests and Levites. Are you the prophet? Now the article is really important here. Are you the prophet? This is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where the Lord promised to raise up a future prophet like Moses. And all the Jews referred to this future prophet as the prophet. If you spoke of the prophet, everyone know, knew you're talking about Deuteronomy 18. Now, where does this question come from? Well, for the Jews, prophecy was dead. It was a phenomenon of the past. God had been silent for centuries. It was sealed up. And John breaks this long silence by going around proclaiming the word of the Lord. So the question is natural. But the book of Acts tells us that Christ is the prophet. John is merely a prophet. So he answers at the end of verse 21, no. You might notice that John is a man of very few words. He has not come to speak about himself. I would not invite him to your next Christian banquet. He doesn't want to share his bio with you. He bears witness to another. As you read this text, there's almost a sense of impatience in John with the questions. He actually gradually shortens his already terse replies. The first question gets five words in reply. The second question gets three. The third question gets one. Three questions, nine words of reply from John. You sent this delegation 20 miles they walked. This big group of theologians and priests. And you ask them your big three questions, you get nine words back. This is a crucial feature of how John gives his testimony. He gets out of the way quickly. If only our testimonies were this short. Brevity is not only the soul of wit, it's the soul of witnessing. Brevity. So in verse 22, the delegation, they're now a little frustrated. They say yet again, who are you? We need to give an answer, they say, to those who sent us, right? Which the 30, it's a 30 or 40 mile round trip, and we have nine words of denial. That's not really much to bring back. So they say, what do you say about yourself? Enough with these negations. We know who you're not. Do you have any positive content to your identity, John? So in answer to this, their fourth question... John describes his whole ministry in one sentence from Isaiah 40, another Advent text. He says, I'm the voice, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. It's interesting, in the other three Gospels, the evangelist, the Gospel writer, says of John that he's the voice from the prophet Isaiah. Here, John says it of himself. He agrees with the other evangelists, I'm the voice of Isaiah 40. So again, it's not not John the individual that's important. It's the fact that he's the voice of Isaiah 40. None of us, no person is what they think they are in their own eyes. We're only who Jesus knows us to be. We're only who Jesus has summoned and called us to be. Our identity is given. 
in the call and the summon of the gospel. And John knows that. So, he's a voice. Narrowness, or narrow excellence in life, is a good thing. It's a good thing to be very good at one thing. And John is a voice, which means he's a living sermon. Just, Just as he was a lamp bearing witness to the light, he's a voice bearing witness to the word. And as far as the, con- if you say, well, what's the content of his ministry? He's a voice. What's the content? He reduces that to one phrase. Here's the content. Make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was conceived, born, raised, trained, nourished, called and summoned to preach seven words. Over and over and over and over again. He has one sermon. I've, I've always envied this because it cuts down on your prep time. He's got the same sermon. He can do like four services a day. It doesn't matter. I'm going to say the same seven words. One sermon, seven words, one lifetime. He calls people to repentant preparation for the visit of the king. That's the force of make straight the way of the Lord. Enable the glory to appear. The king's visit is already underway in the incarnation. You know, Advent, it's often, um, besides the fact that Advent sometimes just slips by us. And of course, Advent is not some sort of canonical law or anything like that. But it is a time that in the wisdom of the church, you have an opportunity to reflect on certain things and to address certain things. And yes, it's a time of great joy and gladness and expectation. But Advent, and this is the part that's often missed, Advent is a penitential season. It's a mini Lent. Purple is a penitential color in the church's long history. It's a mini Lent. And that's why, as I mentioned in the readings, there's a lot of texts about John the Baptist and the second coming and getting ready for the judgment. You hear that all the time at Advent. But it's a reminder that we're waiting for something. Like we're not just waiting for next Sunday or this coming week or next month. We're waiting for this monstrous cosmic event, which has already begun in the baby. We're waiting for an appearance of one who's already appeared. But that's not quite everything, right? I mean, we're waiting, but we know we're not really ever really fully ready for what we're waiting for. And that's why we need repentance. That's why John says, make straight the ways of the Lord. The valleys, the valleys of despair and despondency and brokenness, those are to be healed and lifted up. And the hills and mountains of pride and arrogance and hardness, those are to be leveled and lowered so the glory can appear. The cosmic glory which has appeared in Christ and which will transfigure the cosmos, that cosmic glory is to radiate in your inner being. You're the revel- you are to be the revelation of the glory of God. You need to make the way straight in your own heart. I mean, if we were told, someone told us, you're going to be summoned before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account in 30 minutes. You have 30 minutes to prepare yourself. Well, I think we'd make good use of the time. 
Advent is God's way every year of saying, here's, here's an opportunity to, use the, to get this 30 minutes in every year. To think about your life. What needs to be healed? What needs to be knocked down? So that the glory of God can be unveiled. That's what John's ministry is about. That's how he points to Christ. So, he has a singular, intensely focused person. Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, used to say that the best image of John the Baptist is simply a finger. And that's what he is. He's a finger pointing. And he preaches this one sermon over and over and over. And it's this sermon. It's a sermon you should preach to yourself this Advent. Make straight the way of the Lord. Get the crooked stuff out. Get the valleys out. Get the, the, get the hills down so that the glory, which has been unveiled, can radiate and resonate in our own beings. That's what it means to be an Advent person. So the delegation that's come to John includes some Pharisees, and they ask yet another. This is a fifth question. This is in verse 25. Now, remember, the Pharisees had heard, if you remember John's preaching, we have a little bit more of his preaching, actually, from the other three Gospels. So it's hyperbolic of me to say he only preached seven words. But he had heard them call the Pharisees a brood of vipers. So they're on the end of some really biting denunciations. And so they ask him, uh, then why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I want to point something out here. Um, there's a kind of density in, the, in this. I mean, it's easy to caricature the Pharisees. They were good Pharisees, and so we don't want to think of them all in one bucket. But John just quotes from Isaiah 40, and he says, I'm this voice crying out in the wilderness. You think that that citation and that claim would get a little attention? They just skip right over it. It just goes, whatever. Why are you baptizing? What do, you, what do you mean, why am I baptizing? I'm the voice in the wilderness who's, called, who's trying to get crooked places straight and to bring healing and to bring, to bring the proud down. What do you mean, why am I baptizing? No, they didn't get that. Theologians can be the densest of people sometimes. So they don't get that. What, they, what they're really focused on, this is what churchy people do, right? They're focused on the authorization of John's ministry. Where are your credentials? You didn't fill the right paperwork out. You didn't go through the right procedures. That's what they're actually worried about here. Why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or Elijah? Now, you might remember when Jesus was asked later in the Gospels, he's asked about his authority. Where do you get the authority to do these things? Do you know how he replies? He answers their question with a question. He says, the baptism of John. Tell me, was it from heaven or was it from men? It's Jesus' way of saying, if you want to know where my authority comes from, I had a public witness of the the Holy Ghost to send on me at the hands of the baptism of John. John's the guy who ordained me in public. My public ministerial authority goes back to John's baptism. But the Jerusalem authorities here, they either deny or they're agnostic about John's authority. It's interesting. The Messiah, Ezekiel tells us, will baptize people with clean water. Maybe those associated with the Messiah, like the prophet or Elijah, maybe they can baptize. But John has denied he's one of these people. Why is he baptizing? 
You know, I think it's not just that John doesn't have the right credentials, right? It's not just that he's unauthorized, right? It's that he's calling the whole nation to repentance, including them. Right? It, Jews would baptize Gentile converts, but John is out here baptizing, of course, Gentiles, they would need cleansing from defilement. Of course, they're Gentiles. But John is baptizing circumcised Jews as if they were defiled Gentiles. Once you see that, you can sort of see the scandal of what he's doing and why the Jerusalem delegation is here asking questions. Right? It'd be like somebody coming in here today and declaring to all of you, you all need to be rebaptized because you're not real Christians. That, that, you know, that may not go over well, right? There might be some pushback. You go to the General Assembly of the PCA and you tell everyone they need to be reordained. That's not likely to be received well. And so John is calling these established religious people to repentance. And so in verse 26, he says, I baptize with water. Among, so again, John's not going to give them a direct answer to their question. I baptize with water. Among you stands one you do not know. This one, the one who comes after John, he says, the strap of his sandal I'm unworthy to untie. So again, John is trying to get out of the way here. Right? He, he says, look, I'm not going to get into a conversation with you about my credentials. I'm going to point you to Jesus, which is always a good thing to do if someone's haggling you about something concerning the Christian faith. So he says, I'm not worthy to even bend down and take his sandal off. You know, there were actually rules at this time which governed and rules which set limits to what the duties of a disciple were toward the disciple's master, what duties they could and couldn't perform. And these rules stopped at the removal of the master's sandals. So John's alluding to this. It was, the, the rules forbade a disciple to bend down and take the master's sandals off. Why? It was considered too demeaning, even for a disciple. That was the duty of a slave. Slaves take shoes off people's feet. Disciples do not take the shoes off their master's feet. So John is saying, I'm not worthy even to be a slave in relation to the one I testify about. It's magnificent. He's trying to point them to Jesus. John is a great man. Jesus says, no one born of women is greater. His greatness, though, it consists not only of his unique role as the forerunner, of course that, but it consists in his humility. I don't think we think enough about John the Baptist's humility. That's what this text shows us. Notice, this text does not have a long section on what John preached. It doesn't actually record the baptism of Jesus. It doesn't even record the response of the, the, the multitudes that were coming to John. This is a text about John's witness as, as a humble, transparent, self-effacing voice, a finger. You can see right through John. You look right through him and you see Christ. And I think it's he's an example this way. And that's why Jesus later honors him. You know, if you, if you seek to live this way and humble yourself and point to Christ, Christ will honor you. But he will acknowledge you, as he does later with John. He heaps great praise on John. So John knows himself. His light points away to the light. His voice points away to the word. Right? You have light. You have rationality. You have reason. You have the light of the Spirit in you. 
It's got to be used at Advent to point to the light. You have speech. You have the gift of words, sentences. Those words should point to the word. It's more than John's scorching words of repentance. There's a place to go over that. It's in the other Gospels. But more than his message, more than his baptism, is his example. He's an example to the permanent spirit of Advent preparation that the church has to adopt. In one sense, John's kind of an aesthetic, an ascetic person who reminds us that the Christian life is a life of repentance. So if the glory, you know, the glory of Christmas is to manifest itself, then our witness and our testimony to the Christ has to follow John's pattern. Our repentance has to be shaped by by this goal, making him visible, pointing away from ourselves. In In the later words of John, the witness, he must increase, we must decrease. Amen.